Well, good morning. It is very, very good to be with you all. First and foremost, I like to say that I'm really honored and excited to be able to spend time with you all in the Word. I've been trying to do this for a long time. Uh, Lauren has emailed me quite a bit and said, hey, can you do it? And then I said, yeah, 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 I want to do it. And then somehow something at the university or the seminary or, or something comes up and I say, oh no, I can't do it. So one of the exciting things of becoming president, interim at least, is that I said to my wife, well now I can do e- EWG because no one can tell me no. <laughs> she says, that is the weirdest motivation to, to take on the job. Is that what you told the board? I said, no, but I, I, I thought about it. I mean... And in all seriousness, I am so thrilled for this opportunity because I, I love that you all love the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures. And I am thrilled because women should know the Scriptures. They should know theology. That is so important to the church as the pillar and grounds of the truth. It strengthens the church. So I am grateful for this ministry and for this work and for all of you. And second, I'm particularly honored to talk about Genesis, to give an overview of this book. It's a really vitally important book because it deals with the beginning. Whenever you deal with the beginning, it sets ramifications. It sets the entire storyline. Sometimes we get confused when watching a film or reading a book because we didn't pay attention enough to what was happening at the onset of the storyline. And so and that can happen in our own personal Bible reading and study of the Scriptures. Sometimes we wonder, well, why I don't understand what this book is all about. It's some later book. Maybe in your Bible reading you start with Genesis and then all of a sudden you're in First and Second Kings and you're just thinking, well, why, why, why are we even talking about this? Well, what's going on here? Why does this matter? You can even have that kind of question with books like Isaiah or other prophets. Well, the reason we have confusion about those later books is because we didn't understand what was going on at the beginning. And so, of course, we're going to be confused. Without the context, it's kind of disorienting. Sometimes it's not just about later books of the Bible. Sometimes it's the last things of the Bible, like eschatology. And you think, oh man, that is confusing. I don't understand why God is doing what he's doing there. I don't understand what he is doing there at all. Well, actually, that's because you need to know what is happening in the beginning. For example, in the book of Revelation, you might say, wow, there's just a lot of judgments. God judges over and over and over and over and over again. And you might think that's the way to summarize the book of Revelation. However, if you actually stop and look at those judgments, say the trumpet judgments, what you will notice is that they're in the reverse order of the days of creation. God is decreating. It's like a HGTV, but G doesn't stand for garden. It stands for global. And, and God is tearing down the entire world to remake it, to He is judging it in order to actually establish fully his kingdom in every way. Well, you need to know the beginning to know the end. And you need to know the beginning to know the glory of the end. There could be another example if we're thinking about the last things of the storyline. Satan is described as a dragon. You say, why? 
I mean, I guess dragons, you know, they're not so pleasant looking and, and they're kind of fiery and such. And, and I can understand that. But there's, a, there's an important reason behind this because the word dragon is actually in Greek linked to the Leviathan in Isaiah 27, for example, which is held in parallelism with the serpent. The serpent. And what is God's point in the end? I'm going to fulfill what I promised in the beginning. Finally, now, we have the showdown between the seed promised in Genesis 3.15 and the serpent that has opposed all along. Finally, this promise, the first promise that God ever made, will be fulfilled. God is so faithful because what he began, he will finish. And so knowing the beginning helps you to know later books of the Scripture. It helps you to know the last things of the Scripture. It even just allows us to know why individual things are happening the way they happen, to help us to even understand the right questions to ask so that we have the right perspective on Scripture. If you've ever read your Bible and you just say, I don't understand why I need to know that, how that applies to my life, well, maybe, in part, the reason that there is confusion about those individual matters is because... We need to understand the beginning a whole lot better and understand how it aligns and directs our thinking. So if you get the beginning right, everything falls into place. Everything falls into place. And that really is the goal of this interview. I say that to my students at the Master's University. They kind of get panicky because in Old Testament Survey 1, where we cover Genesis through 2 Samuel, I might spend a month and a half on Genesis, that might be a lighter semester because usually it could be even more. And they get nervous. Are you going to get the second Samuel? Are we going to actually get there? Or are we going to just get examined on things we don't know? And I say, if you get the beginning right, everything will fall into place. That's also my excuse for lingering a lot in Genesis. Now, if you're wondering, what are you going to do this hour or 45 minutes? Same thing. We're just going to try to figure out how to cram Six weeks of lectures into six weeks of lectures. Just kidding. But we will do our best to get through uh, Genesis. A dear sister came up to me and said, I've never heard anyone go through Genesis in 45 minutes. And I said, me neither. So we're going to try to do this together. And if I could summarize Genesis, if I could give it a point of us emphasizing and thinking about everything in this book, it would be that God begins. That's the point of Genesis. God begins. Not just that there is a beginning, but God begins. This is his story. This is his agenda. This is his purpose. This is his people. This is his plan. And he begins. He is the sovereign one. And if we understand that reality, it sets everything in the storyline of Scripture in the right trajectory, and even more so, it displays the majesty, the sovereignty, the dominion of God here in this book and for the rest of Scripture. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, we begin to see that God does begin, and that God does have a purpose, and that God is deliberate, and that everything in Scripture is moving toward His Son, even in the structure of Genesis, even in the structure of Genesis. So before we even get into the content, just by way of illustration of just showing you how deliberate God is in composing His Word and in His plan, let's just talk about the structure. And you say, structure? Well, why, why do we need... That's some nerdy stuff. Structure. 
organization of a book. You know, why do we need to know that kind of stuff? Well, we do need to know how the Bible and how an individual book of the Bible fits together, how God designed it to be. But more than this, like I just said, it will demonstrate to you how deliberate God has set in motion everything from Genesis in his plan. And so you say, what is the nature of the structure of this book? Well, it's around this Hebrew word called toledot. Toledot. You say, what is that? A tola what? A toledot, which is a fancy Hebrew word that often means generations. Generations. You might have heard this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of heaven and earth. Or in chapter 5, verse 1, we hear that these are the generations of Adam. Or in chapter 6, verse 9, you might hear these are the generations of Noah. And you will hear that throughout the entire book of Genesis. These are the genealogies, or these are the generations. These are the families of these individuals. You say, okay, Why does that matter? I get that that is the way the book is organized, the way the book fits together, but what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is this, that this is tracing a line. This is tracing a lineage. And it is the process of elimination. That is what is going on in the book of Genesis. There is a process of elimination. And you say, why is there a process of elimination? Because there's a promise. And God made the promise, and he said, Woman, you will have a child. You will have an offspring. You will have a seed. And he will crush the serpent's head. And immediately, once those words are spoken, history moves forward in a quest to find that one. Where does he come from? From whom does he come from? These are the questions that Genesis is pursuing. And so every genealogy, every one of these structural markers, it is the process of elimination. Well, where could the Messiah come from? He could come from anyone in humanity, Adam or his wife. And then, no, not just Adam and his wife. No, it's, it's from the line of Noah. Well, Noah's got three kids. What three kids? Okay, Shem. Shem is the selected individual, and you might have even heard of anti-Semitism that actually comes from the term Shem. These are Shemites, Semites. And then you get Shem, and then God says, well, no, we got to go a little bit further from that, and then you get, out of all the Semitic nations, you get Abraham. But Abraham's got a couple of kids, technically, so then you winnow it down to Isaac. And Isaac's got some kids, Jacob and Esau. So then you got to winnow it down from there to Jacob. And Jacob's got 12 sons and a daughter. Like I remind my students, don't forget the daughter. She matters. But then you got to figure out which of the 12 sons. You got options. And then you conclude, at least in Genesis, with Judah. With Judah. And then from there, you get David. And then from there, you can continue down the Davidic line through Solomon. And then through Solomon, you continue the kingly line, and it goes so on and so forth until you get to the book of Matthew. And how does Matthew begin? With a genealogy. Why? Because Matthew is the genesis of the New Testament. And Matthew says, let me tell you, we have been on a quest in the Old Testament for the Messiah. 
We want to find where he has come from. And what it starts with is any human being, any man could be an option. But the line, God has focused down and he has focused and winnowed it down and he has concentrated it forward and it has been the process of elimination until there is only one who can be the Messiah. And Matthew says, and let me tell you the final winnowing down till you get to Mary, Joseph, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew finishes what Genesis begins. And so even something like a genealogy, which we think might not be the most scintillating reading, and even something like structure, which we think only nerds do, which is true, those things can be theological. They can be practical. And they demonstrate everything God is doing is driving forward to show and honor his son. That is the deliberate work of God. God has been about his son from the very beginning, from the very beginning. And even the structure of the Old Testament, the structure of Genesis demonstrates that. So in light of this, in light of this nature of that Genesis is cohesive, it's a whole, it's a whole story, it's organized, it's purposeful, let's walk through the book as best as we can. And I'd like to arrange it around a series of P's. Uh, just so that we can kind of get it in our mind appropriately, that God begins certain things, and each of them has a point, and let's talk about that now. So in Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning of the book, and in the beginning, technically, God begins the planet. God begins the planet. And immediately, the thesis of all of Scripture and of all of history is begun at the beginning, God created God created. Notice it does not say that God made. Human beings can make. God alone creates. It is distinctive of himself. It is distinctive of himself. And you say, is that just some kind of thing theologians think of? No, no, no. That's actually from the Bible. The word create is only used with the subject of God. That's it. You say, well, man can create. No, he can't. No, he can't. It's like the joke with the atheist or quasi-agnostic, I guess, scientist who thought he could make a person, and he said, hey, God, let's have a contest, you and me. And God says, okay, you build a man, and he starts to create man out of the dust, and God says, get your own dirt. (laughs) And it just illustrates the point. Man makes. Man makes. God alone creates. This is the distinctive nature of God. He alone creates. That is his distinctive nature. He is the creator, and everything else is the creation. Everything in this world, then, bows to him because he is its sovereign owner, the sovereign origin, the sovereign dominion belongs to him and him alone. And that is what Genesis 1 articulates. And by the way, sometimes... The reason we are confused when we read the Bible is we forget who the main character is. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, God's doing these miracles, and there's these battles, and and there's these judgments. How does that affect me? And and look, just remember, Genesis 1-1, God created. You weren't there. You're not the main character. In a lot of ways, we don't matter. Totally. God 
is the main character. And sometimes we get confused when we read our Bibles because we are tempted to keep inserting ourselves into the scriptures when really we should be focused on the main character, who is God? Who is God? He's been the main character since the first verse. We haven't been the main character. We need to remember this. And God, in, his, in the thesis statement, shall we say, of Scripture, of Genesis 1-1, and really the whole chapter, he asserts he has dominion over all. He is the creator. Everything else is the creation. And just sometimes we can kind of lose ourselves and, and forget how Genesis 1 works. If I ask sometimes people, can you recite the days of creation in order? People really struggle. I get it. It's like day one, light and dark, day two, land and sea, day three, wait, sky and sea? Or wait, wait, I know he made people on day six, but what day did he make? Like the sunlight? Was that day two? Or, you know, and you, and you just get really, really confused. Let me help you. Let me help you. And it'll show you that actually this is all deliberate. And it'll show you God's sovereignty. We remember that creation, when it began, was formless and void. It was disorganized and empty. So the first three days takes care of the disorganization. Takes care of the disorganization. It organizes spaces. Light and dark. Sky and ocean. Land. Days four and six, it fills those spaces. What fills light and dark? Sun, moon, and stars. What fills sky and sea? Sea creatures, air creatures. What fills the land? Land, animals, and man. It's that simple. One, two, three, four, five, six. They all correspond. So simple. And you say, oh, wow, now I can memorize it. Yes, but don't just miss the memorization part for the real part, which is God is in control of every space, and he is in control of everything that fills the space. Put it in terms of scripture. He is in, he is in control of the earth and all that fills it. All its fullness. Why? Because this is a thesis that says this is the way God made it. This is the way God organized it. This is the way God ordained it. This is the way he filled it. All of it is his. There is not anything on this earth that is exempt from his sovereignty and exempt from his glory. That is precisely why on day seven, when he rests, it says he sanctified the Sabbath. Everything that has been created is sanctified unto his glory. It is meant to be set apart for holiness. And that is everything that we do in our existence. It is meant for the glory of God because he alone is worthy. And Genesis 1 lays that out for us. Genesis 1 lays that out for us. Well, God begins the planet. And that demonstrates his exclusive, total, lofty, unassailable sovereignty. In Genesis 2 through 3, you could say it this way. God begins his purpose. God begins his purpose. He's begun the planet. What's he going to do with the thing? Genesis 2 through 3 tells you what he's going to do with it. How he's going to demonstrate his sovereignty. How he's going to demonstrate his glory. How is he going to receive full honor as God? And in Genesis 2 through 3, we see God begins his purpose 
He has ordained man over creation. If you read the opening parts of Genesis chapter 2, you will see that creation is actually waiting for man to come. There was no rain. Certain plants did not sprout yet. They were actually created in seed form because they were waiting for man to come and till the ground. You know, I live in Santa Clarita, and in Santa Clarita, we have a lot of tree huggers. Uh, That's one thing that we're famous for. One time I was in an airport overseas in Amsterdam, of all places. And uh, somebody asked me where I was from. I said, California. Where in California? By Los Angeles. Where in Los Angeles? Oh, you've never heard of it. Santa Clarita. And he said, Santa Clarita? That's Santa Clarita? And CNN is playing about these people in Santa Clarita who would not vacate a tree, an oak tree, to get it cut down. He goes, that's you guys? (laughs) And, And I said, yeah. He says, you guys are weird. I said, they're weird. I'm a sojourner in that area. We have tree huggers. You have to understand in Genesis 2, creation originally was a man hugger. Creation needed man. Creation depended on man. It's the perfect relationship. God creates man over creation, but not in a tyrannical kind of way. God creates woman from man, and the reaction man has is to wax eloquent in true poetry. He's true Hallmark before his time. (laughs) And everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. And that's the way it should be as God mediates his authority through man along with woman over all creation. But in Genesis 3, we see that there's a challenge. And this is all under the sovereignty of God, all under the sovereignty of God. The serpent, he's very shrewd, and he's He's going against everything that God had made. Everything that God had made. And you say, why does that matter? Because what you start to see in Genesis 3 is that it's trying to, that is the serpent is trying to undo the hierarchy God had created. God had created God. Well, he didn't create himself, but as God, he created man over creation. And now what you have is creation trying to dethrone man to dethrone God. And that's Satan's devilish plot. He's using creation against God. In fact, he is trying to use man against God. If we understand this very carefully, it's interesting that as the serpent is talking to the woman, he keeps saying, or it keeps saying, you all. You all. Why does the serpent keep talking about you in the plural if he's talking to the woman? Simple. Because the woman wasn't the only one there. Her husband was there the whole time. And you might wonder, why didn't Adam just say, stop talking to my woman? I mean, or something like that. But that doesn't happen. And it's all within God's sovereignty, and the serpent is immensely deceptive. He actually doesn't say anything wrong. You will eat the fruit, and you will have your eyes opened, and you will be like God. What happens? She eats the fruit. Her eyes are opened. And you say, but she's not like God. Wait, hold on. Remember what Genesis 1 said. God created man not just like God, but in his image. That is much closer. That is much more intimate. That has far degrees of intensity of similarity than if you're just like God. Satan was telling, in a sense, a truth. He just made it sound good. It's kind of like a used car salesman. 
This car, one of its best features is that it has an anti-theft protection device. It doesn't run. <laughs> and you're like, wow, it'll never get stolen? Nope, can't. And even if it does, it's an improvement. Whoa. Give it to me. Genesis 3, Satan said, you'll just be like God. And they didn't realize that that was a downgrade. That was a downgrade. Their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked. The image of God is marred. It doesn't mean we've lost the image of God. It just means it's now distorted. And we know that. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. But just to show you how the beginning sets the trajectory of so many things, it is absolutely fascinating. Hear this language in Luke 24. It says this, when the disciples were on the road to Emmaus with the Lord Jesus Christ, it said this, their eyes were opened and they saw him. Who's the him? The Lord Jesus Christ. The first time their eyes are open and they realize they lost the image of God in a sense. It was distorted. It was marred. And then the second time this phrase occurs, Luke 24, their eyes are open and they see not just someone in the image of God. They see the image of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how they'll all be remade. And so redemptive history is moving somewhere. It is moving somewhere, and God has a purpose in it, and he's going to begin this purpose, and we know it's redemption. We already heard about it in Luke 24, but God lays the foundation for it in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. This is the crucial promise of God that sets the very trajectory of everything in God's plan. Genesis 3.15, and, and it says that Satan doesn't win at all. He doesn't win in the immediate level. He might have thought he could manipulate the woman, but what does the text say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. You you will not win her. And he thought, maybe I could win history. No, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. This is the very way all of the rest of history will work, that there will be a conflict between God's chosen remnant and the rest of the world that is enslaved to Satan, but Satan will never win at all. Satan will not win then. He will not win in the immediate. He will not win in the distant, and he will not win ultimately. Why? Because there will be one. He will crush your head. When someone's head is crushed, they're dead. This is basic science, basic biology, and Satan would understand that. And in fact, just to demonstrate it to Satan, have you ever wondered why God has to curse the serpent and make it slither on the ground? Have you ever wondered that? Why do that? Well, not every person is Jackie Chan and can kind of like kick their foot up in the air and hit, you know, flying snakes or, or something like that. But if it's slithering around the ground, it's easy to what? Imagine... That you stomp on the serpent's head. And God says, I will remake the snake so that everyone knows, including you, Satan, that you will never win. You will never win. Creation will testify that you will lose. And so now God has done that. He has said that there will be one that crushes the serpent's head. But in the midst of this great triumph, in the midst of this great victory, there is still pain. And we know that because... The serpent will strike the seed's heel. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's kind of like when you stomp on something and go, ow, that kind of hurt. And so it's not like the serpent's this great strategist, like, you know, trying to, trying to bite the guy's heel. It's just in the process of smashing the guy's head, you get hurt. 
But the very fact that there is a mention of it tells you the way that this victory will be procured has to be at a cost. Has to be at a cost. And immediately, already, you start to see the victory of God, and you start to see the cross. You start to see the cross laid out from the very beginning. And right when God says these words, redemptive history moves along that very track. And so God has begun the planet, and he has said, I am the sovereign, I am the main character, I am the creator, everything bows before me. He has begun his purpose. What is, how is he going to prove that? How is he going to demonstrate that he is unassailable, and he is the creator, and he is the true king? Well, he will engage in redemption around his son. That is how he will do it. And then then what we need to see is then that God begins his plan. God begins his plan. And that is in Genesis 4 through 11. Genesis 4 through 11, God begins his plan. One thing immediately we need to understand is sometimes people wonder, why doesn't God just hurry up and smash the serpent's head? I mean, that would be faster. Why couldn't he do it like Amazon, two-day delivery? We put in the order, One, Satan smashed, and then two days later, it says, it is finished. That would be simple. Yes, you're right. If the story was all about us, it would be simple. But we're not the main character, and we're not the main focus. This is about God unveiling himself. This is about God honoring his son. And this is about God explaining and revealing to us the full glory of that moment when he defeats the serpent. All that is really entailed so that we as believers would eternally marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, if the story was about us and we were the center of the story and it had to meet our expectations, sure, instantaneous salvation would be great. But it's not about us. This is about the father loving his son and showing off his son for all the world and all of history to see. And so there is an elaborate plan, and God begins it in chapters 4 through 11. And and God just demonstrates flat out and first and foremost that Satan never wins. He never, ever, ever wins. Chapter 4, we read about the famous story of Cain and Abel, and we know how evil just grips humanity, and we can see that in the line of Cain, and we can see that Cain murders Abel. Why does that happen? In part, Satan is trying to do a preemptive strike. Well, you only got two options right now, and I know Cain is not the guy, so it must be Abel. It must be him. And so, get rid of him, and therefore, I win. That might be the satanic plot. Hilariously, God demonstrates to Satan, "Um, no, that wasn't the line. You do know that Adam and his wife can have more than two children. And they have a son named Seth, which is great, because Seth's name means appointed one. Why? Because this is the appointed line. This is the line of the seed. And God just demonstrates to Satan, nice try, but you failed. God always wins. God always wins. He preserves his line in chapter 5. We do understand that original sin is happening because Adam fell. And notice, actually, the language. It's absolutely fascinating that he has a son in his likeness, in his fallen likeness, everyone, because we are in Adam. We all fall. That is what we call original sin. Genesis 5, 1 through 3. 
demonstrates that. Genesis 5, 1 through 3 demonstrates that. Original sin is not some new idea that the New Testament portrayed. It's something that started at the very beginning. Started at the very beginning. And, and God, though, even though all of humanity fell, God is preserving a line. He's preserving a line, and it culminates at this point with Noah. And Noah's father, Lamech, he prays, may God give us rest through this child, through all the toil and turmoil of the weeds and and the thistles growing against us. Now, the rabbis have a funny joke about this. And the funny joke is, be careful what you wish for. Because there is a way that God will provide rest. In fact, Noah's name means rest. But the reason that God and the way that God will provide rest for the earth is through the flood. To be clear, the flood is judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is it the wrath of God? Absolutely. Is it his condemnation against sin? Absolutely. But at the same time, it is a way for God to restrain evil in this world. To, to limit it. The way I kind of make an analogy, and maybe you all would empathize, it's like giving a child a bath. It's judgment. <laughs> but we would also acknowledge that it is cleansing. It's cleansing. And you might even say it restrains some kinds of evil on them. God will work to judge the world, and it does need to be judged. Genesis 6 illustrates as the sons of God, these angelic creatures, try to do a devilish plot. Once again, Satan is always scheming to try to stop God, to possess perhaps people to intermarry with other people and and all of that to create a perverted race and it doesn't work that's what genesis 6 4 through 6 demonstrates it doesn't work at all it fails like everything satan does fails but it just demonstrates the wickedness the corruption of the human heart everyone every thought that forms in their heart is only bent on wickedness and as a result god must judge And there is the flood, and he does preserve, nevertheless, demonstrating his plan goes forward, and that is with Noah. But at the same time, chapter 8, God does remember Noah, and he does continue to preserve that line. And in fact, here's what becomes interesting. It starts to talk about how there was only sky and sea. Where have we heard that language of sky and sea? Genesis chapter 1. And then it talks about how the waters receded and then the dry land appeared. Where have we heard the language dry land appeared? Genesis chapter 1. And then, and then Noah comes out and God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. We understand that language from Genesis chapter 1. There is a reset. There is a somewhat of a reset. God has judged, but to advance his plan forward, God is beginning a plan, and he is refining the seed promised through that. All of that is moving forward now because creation in its full sinfulness is, re- is restrained in and of itself, and God promises Noah the Noahic covenant, which says, I won't ever flood the world again. I won't ever leverage this kind of destruction. Rather, there will be stability. There will be stability, seed time and harvest. Why does that matter? Because now things are what we call normal. Normal. And history can move forward. History can move forward. God has created and recreated the world so that his plan can just move forward like normal. And the Noahic covenant, this very key promise of God, it, like I said, the word Noah means rest. And so the covenant not only shows that there will be temporary respite from the chaos of sin, there will be restraint. 
However, at the same time, what it looks forward to, where have we heard the term rest before? The Sabbath rest. There will be a time when God will give the rest that is Edenic, the rest that we saw originally in Genesis, and history moves to that destination. Well, God not only will restrain creation, God has to restrain the creatures of creation, like people. And so people are still sinful. We know that people are still sinful. Their hearts are still bent on wickedness. God even acknowledges that explicitly in the text, and we see that illustrated in Noah. Noah's blessed. He plants a vineyard. It actually grows. But instead of actually giving glory to God, he gets drunk. He gets drunk. Sin hasn't left this earth just because you give it a bath. Hasn't left. And so there is a curse that goes out against the line of Canaan, specifically, which will set up for the conquest of Israel. But now we start to see the gemination from that of nations, of nations. And that's why there are a bunch of nations mentioned in Genesis 10. God has a plan, not just for one nation, but all the nations. And within that, why does God start the nations? Because man, in his depravity, will always band together, given the opportunity to rebel against God. And that would obstruct the flow of his plan. And that's what you see in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. In fact, the word Babel is the same word as Babylon. So when later on you start to see all the rebellion of Babylon, both in Israel's history and ultimately in the book of Revelation, what you begin to learn then is this this rebellion goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and man, given the opportunity to merge together because of an unhindered language, for example, unified language, for example, they will always unite as a solid block against God. And so God, in his mercy, divides them. He separates them. He gives them each their own language, which is a consequence of their own sin, but it is a mercy because now nation will restrain nation and nation will fight against nation so that that ultimate kind of rebellion is not yet. There is time. By the way, on a side note, in Acts 2, now you begin to understand the beauty of the church and why God even ordained tongues in part. Because at the Tower of Babel, people spoke in tongues in rebellion against God and were divided. But in Acts 2, in the church, people speak in tongues to please God, to declare God, and they are united. Acts 2, Pentecost, is a reverse Babel. It's a reverse Babel, and that's what the church is. The church is a reverse Babel. The fact that we are all here together and and we have different things going together, it is indicative of the fact that, yes, God has undone, he has undid the nature of Babel. Now, there are nations, which means to witness to those nations, you need a nation. Because there are nations, because God had to restrain to pave the way for his plan, then you're going to need a nation to witness to all those nations. And so now you understand that God has begun a plan. He's begun a purpose. He's begun a plan. And within that, he's been winnowing down the line of seed from Adam and his wife to Noah and from Noah to Shem. And we're moving forward now to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, Abraham. And that is why you need a nation of Israel to witness to all the other 
nations. It's not just that God wanted to choose a country for the sake of choosing a country. It's in the context of the world. And, and now we have the final kind of P. God began a planet. God began his purpose. God began a plan. And now God begins a people. God begins a people, the people of Israel. And you say, why does God spend so much time developing this people besides the fact that he needs to raise them up to be a nation for his own glory? It's because this nation needs to portray certain values. And if you don't understand that nations portray values, just think quickly about America. Americans and America, we portray certain values. People know us for certain things. They know that we like freedom. They know that we like rights. They know that we like to buy a lot of stuff. They know these things about us. They're true. They know that we like to eat a lot. They, these things, if you go across the world, they are well-known facts about the America. And therefore, in the same way, Israel needed to have a reputation. Because their job is to be a witness to all the nations. That is the goal. And so as a result of this, what we begin to observe is that God, generation by generation, builds up exactly exactly what Israel is to announce. And these are lessons that we need to understand. And there are three of them, three major, major lessons that God does. And it's in the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do we learn from Abraham's time? That would be Genesis 12, say, through 25. Genesis 12 through 25, one word, you learn about faith. You learn about faith. Faith from the very beginning that God called him to leave his land. And he promises him three things, land, seed, and blessing. And God will teach Abraham patiently to trust him in all three of those things. He teaches him to trust him with the promise of land. Abraham, will you stay in the land when there's a famine? The answer is no. Fail. Then he comes back. In chapter 13, God says, okay, when you're with Lot... And Lot sees Sodom and Gomorrah, and he thinks it's a good idea to go there because it's a fruitful place. Are you going to go with them? Are you going to fight them for it? No. Good job. Now you believe in land. Now you believe in that promise. But it's land, seed, and blessing. So there's a second promise, seed. And in Genesis 13 and 14, you might run into, oh, there's this guy named Melchizedek. Why is he all of a sudden popping up out of nowhere? It's because God is helping Abraham understand the seed promise the promise of the Messiah. And Melchizedek is prototypical in that way. You start to learn, oh, this is about a king priest. You start to learn this is a person from Jerusalem. This is a person who is the king of righteousness. These things matter because it is helping Abraham to understand and conceptualize the grandeur of the seed promise. And how does he obtain it? And how does all that flow? Genesis 15 God tells Abraham, trust me. And we are familiar with the text, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is what is going on there. And God, to solidify the nature of this faith, that it is not your own work at all, but trust in 100% of what God does, he actually cuts up these animals. You say, why does he do that? Because in an agreement that you make with somebody, in a covenant, you would walk through the pieces as if to say, if I violate this agreement, you can cut me into pieces. But here's what happens. Abraham's asleep. He's asleep. He's kind of just dreaming about it, and God walks through the pieces. Why? Because Abraham, you don't have to do anything. God walked through the pieces and say, I will never break my promises. This is all on me. And that is the nature of God's promises to his people, Israel. And that is the nature of God's promises, period. They are what we call unilateral. God does it by himself. God does it by himself. 
Trust in him. Does Abraham trust in him fully? Not yet. Genesis 16, you have Hagar and Ishmael. Doesn't work out so well. But God is patient. And God disciplines. And in chapter 17 through 20, what we see is on one hand, yes, God reminds Abraham, you didn't walk blamelessly with me. you got to walk blamelessly. And as a result, at the same time, what we see is, but God is still building his relationship with Abraham. He listens to Abraham's prayer for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as terrible as Sodom and Gomorrah is, worthy of judgment for their abominations that they have done against marriage, God still delivers Lot. Why? for the sake of Abraham. And God is still at work for the promises of seed. If you remember, there's this story about, it it almost sounds like what happened in Egypt, but it happens with another guy named Abimelech, that Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. And you say, why is that happening? Because for some reason, Sarah looks like a woman who can still have children. There's a miracle going on. And it's amazing because in the next chapter, she has a son. She has a son. And Abraham trusted God, and he should trust God, and God will deliver the seed. And God then says, Abraham, will you believe me all the way? What happens if I take away your son? Will you still believe me? Genesis 22, that's the ultimate test of faith. Will you trust God to do the impossible? And we know from Hebrews, and even indicated in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, that God that Abraham did believe. He, could, he believed that God would raise the dead. And you say, how does that even indicate it in Genesis 22? Because this is what he tells his young men. We will go, and we will sacrifice, and we will return. Abraham knew there, was, there has to be a way that God will make this all okay. He will never break his promises, and he will do whatever it takes. We will return. Both of us. Not just me, both of us. He believed in the resurrection. And because of that, God says, if you want to understand how to trust God for the seed promise, if you want to understand what is accounted as righteousness, it's faith. Israel, that's part of your foundation. And God blesses Abraham with a legacy, with blessing. And he provides Abraham's son with a wife, and we know who she is. And all of these things help to continue the promises of land, seed, and blessing. Well, we have to keep going. What time am I supposed to finish? I got three minutes. So, oh, three o'clock this afternoon. Well, then I would like slow down a little bit. I mean, but we can do this in five. So, here we go. The next generation Abraham, then Isaac, yes? And Isaac, interestingly enough, it focuses on Jacob versus Esau. What we start to see is that the seed promise is starting to get windowed down further. But if the first word is about faith, that's what Israel is supposed to have, the second word is God's presence. He's present. In fact, if you want to write another word along with that, it would be the name Israel, because that's where you get the name here. And Isaac is blessed, but here's what we start to see is that Jacob... He just keeps scheming. He's just a really tricky guy. But his schemes aren't so intelligent. They're really not that bright. Like Genesis 27, he and his mom, they were both scheming together. And they were like, oh, put on the goat skins, go faster, make favorite dish. And then Jacob goes to his dad and says, hi, dad. And, Jacob, and dad's like, Jacob? No, Esau. I'm Esau. I mean, you just don't have a foolproof scheme. But how does it go through? Because God redeems. God redeems. He's with us. And that's why Jacob has a dream at Bethel of a, of a ladder or a stairway connecting heaven and earth because God is with us. 
He isn't some deist God that just disappeared. He is with us. He is driving his plan forward. You trust in the God that is with us. He is with us. He is present. And Laban tries to trick Jacob out of everything, doing all kinds of terrible things. And Jacob doesn't really have good counterattacks. But God redeems it because he's with Jacob. The, the culmination of it all is that Jacob runs away from Laban, thinking that he can escape his father. And you guys would be able to empathize with this. He's got little kids with them. He's like, come on, guys, we gotta, gotta hurry up. Like, we gotta go. Like, it's gonna look like I'm kidnapping you and, and we gotta run. And he's and Laban's got the elite forces. Who's gonna outrun who? They run for a living. The kids just run around. Well, what are you gonna do? But God gives Laban a dream. It says, Do no good, do no harm to this man. God is always with him. God is always with him. And he has to deal with Esau. And we know that story, but it all kind of comes to a peak when he is wrestling with that man of God. Yes? And here's what's fascinating. The word wrestle in Hebrew is ya'avek. Jacob's name is ya'akov. Do you hear the similarity? Jacob, that's all you've been doing your whole life. You've been trying to wrestle with God. And God says, let me show you what I can do. Touch your thigh and you're lame. Jacob, all you've been doing, you've just been scheming your way through life. You think by wrestling, you're going to make it. You're living in a fantasy. The only reason you've made it is because your name is not really Jacob. It's Israel. And Israel means God fights for you. God fights for you. Who do we have faith in? We have faith in the God that fights for us. We have faith in the God that fights for us. And that is Israel's rallying cry. That is Israel's rallying cry. Jacob keeps making mistakes. He keeps blumbering around. Eventually, he returns to Bethel to acknowledge that God has always been with us. And he fights for us. Well, the story has to keep going, and so do we. And so Genesis 37 through 50, if there's three parts to building up this people, to building up the kind of foundation, theological foundation that we need to know and that they needed to tell the world, it is faith, it is that God is present with us, or Israel, that God fights for us. And finally, what does he fight to do? What is he present to do? 37 through 50 shows this. He fights to turn evil to good. He fights to turn evil to good. And we know that. In Genesis 37 through 50, that's the conclusion of the entire story. And really, the entire story is about God turning evil to good in so many ways. Joseph is not a cute little kid. He's 17 when this story begins. He is a not-cute punk. He's got dreams, and the way he tells his brother the dreams shows he doesn't have integrity in mind. This isn't just some innocent thing. And he gets thrown into a pit. Reuben tries to convince them to do certain things that doesn't work. And it's Judah who says, oh, let's sell him. At least we can make some money off of it. And everyone says, great idea. And immediately you realize this story isn't just about Joseph. It's about Judah. It's about Judah. Who's going to be the real leader here? Judah. Judah. But Joseph's not so good. And Judah's not good either. Judah never takes responsibility for every, anything. Chapter 38 makes that very clear with his interactions with Tamar. He just doesn't take responsibility for his kids, for making right by his kids, for handling his daughter-in-law, for his own crimes. He takes no responsibility whatsoever. This is Judah's problem. But God is refining, and he turns evil to good in Joseph's life. 
We see that in Potiphar's house. He's even blessing Egypt because God promised that there would be blessing through Israel. Joseph is starting to change with Potiphar's wife. That's illustrative of that. He's starting to be refined in prison. And then God elevates him to be with Pharaoh. God is working on Joseph. But he's not just working on Joseph. He's working on the brothers. Have you ever wondered why Joseph keeps asking about Benjamin with his brothers? Because he's wondering this. Did you do what you did to me, to him? Did you do what you, or did you change? Did you do what you did to me, to him? Or did you change? And what Joseph learns is that Benjamin's still alive. So the brothers must have changed. And so then he says, okay, let's take it up one notch. Let's take this trial up one notch. And really God's glory is being put on display. Will you do the same thing if you were pressured that you did to me, to Benjamin? And what's amazing, and I love this, and it's so powerful. You know, Reuben, poor guy, he just never, he, he just can't negotiate anything. So he, he tells his dad, hey, we got to go back to Egypt. Uh, and if you, if you let me go back to Egypt and I don't bring Benjamin back with us, you can kill your grandchildren. What, what kind of appeal to a grandparent is that? That doesn't make any sense. Reuben, non-negotiator. Judah says, if I don't bring back Benjamin, you can regard me as sin forever. Now that is responsibility. And when the situation comes, and the question is, will you do what you did to Joseph, now to Benjamin? Judah gives the most beautiful speech in chapter 44, verse 18 and following. And the last words are this. So take me in his place. Take me in his place and let my brother go back to my father. This is the moment Judah takes responsibility, and this is the moment God uses to define what it means to be the true king of Israel. You are the leader of your people, and you will substitute for them. You will take their place. That's what it means to be the true king. And at this moment now, Judah becomes in the line of seed. And everything starts to move forward. And Joseph reveals that God has had a plan. And the nation will be preserved. And it will be a blessing to all the other nations. And blessings and prophecies start to come out in Genesis 48 and 49. And in 49.10, it talks about how the Messiah will come from the line of Judah. And he will make everything right in this world. There will be an abundance of grapes and milk and cattle and everything because now God has moved his plan forward. He has made the promises. He has winnowed down the line of seed. He has made the planet. He has made his purpose. He has made his plan happen. And he has made everything, even a people, to be a witness to him giving them land, seed, and blessing, establishing faith that God fights. And not only does he fight, he fights to turn evil to good because that's what Joseph realized his entire generation has illustrated before everyone. And with that then, the ending of Genesis, the ending of Genesis is both somber and hopeful. You say, how so? Because they end with burying Joseph in Egypt. They end with burying Joseph in Egypt. And you say, why? Why did they do that? Well, on one hand, it's honor, because even the Egyptians recognize the value of Joseph. In you, all the nations will be blessed. They have a hint of that. But you know the story can't end there. God promised them land, seed, and blessing. They're not in their land, and they need to get back there. And that's how Genesis leads to the book of Exodus. Shall we pray?
Our God and Father, we are so thankful for the beginnings. It all glorifies you. And as we think about how you began the planet, how you began your purpose and your plan, how we marvel how you build a people. So many important lessons. All of them give glory to you. May we love you. May our life center around you. May we take this to heart. And may we glory in your Son, whom you have been driving as the center of all history, and all history is driving to him. It is in his name we pray. Amen.